We're on the record. I'm Sheila Cast. Good morning. 3,000 miles on asphalt, gravel, dirt, in rain, wind, and blazing sun, tracing on bicycles the 19th century routes of enslaved people who traveled mostly on foot, sometimes with no shoes, mostly at night, always on the lookout for the slave catchers bent on thwarting their dreams of liberty. 3,000 miles in three journeys, one echoing Harriet Tubman's repeated forays guiding family from Maryland's eastern shore to Canada, other trips hugging the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. David Goodrich, a retired climate scientist who lives in Rockville, has written a travel log threaded with history. It's titled, On Freedom Road, Bicycle Explorations and Reckonings on the Underground Railroad. He joins us by Zoom to talk about it. Welcome to On the Record. Thanks very much, Sheila. It's, it's delightful to be here. What inspired you to ride? I was on another long ride across the country, um, and I stopped by a, a little out-of-the-way museum in Illinois, and the woman, um, historical museum, and the woman there handed me um, she said was a slave collar. And I realized that I was on this sort of unseen river of people from a long time ago. And, uh, and I thought I should find out about this. Uh, it turned out later that it's not sure, not convinced whether that slave collar was authentic or not, but it was, that sort of got me going on it. And, uh, I know there's a group called Adventure Cycling that has a has uh, laid out an underground railroad route um, from the south up to Lake Erie and into Canada, and and I decided I wanted to I wanted to ride that. I also discovered uh, on a trip to Bristol, England, which is where my family comes from. There's a Goodrich Castle there, um, but in the Museum of the Commonwealth there, I stumbled on a reference to a sea captain named John Goodrich who had sailed on the Middle Passage. And it's just, when I saw that, it was just like, I just kind of stepped back and said, wow. Uh, and it was, for me, it was just a realization of, of how we all have a piece of this enterprise of slavery, sometimes when we don't necessarily expect it at all. But that was kind of what got me, got me going on finding out about the ride. Yeah, you're right that John Goodrich was a captain on the Middle Passage and kept detailed notes, and apparently about half the enslaved people he was carrying died on his, on the journey. Yes, he has very good records, uh, 245 boarded in West Africa, and uh, I believe 114 got off in Jamaica. So it, it just, yeah, kind of kind of gives you the shivers. You write, quote, there's a certain perilous lure to the Underground Railroad for white folks like me, close quote. What is the lure? What is the peril? Well, I think that it's almost like, uh, for starters, making it more than it actually was. Because, you know, while it was, uh, as, as Henry Louis Gates says, you know, um, it was a real thing, but um, it affected perhaps on the order of 20,000 people. 20,000 people who made, made it to freedom on the underground. Made it, made it to freedom, correct. Um, and you compare that against close to a million people um, who were 
uh, enslaved and transported from the Upper South to the Lower South in the first half of the 19th century. And I think there's the, the peril is for, is almost this white savior complex that we go back and say, well, our, our, you know, our ancestors must have been heroically helping people on the Underground Railroad. When in fact, this was just a, a huge enterprise um, in the United States um, in the first half of the 19th century. And the Underground Railroad was a relatively small thing. And it was primarily, while aided by white people, it was an activity fraught with danger f- for the African Americans who made it happen. Sure. I mean, the, and it, it was primarily um, black people helping black people. I mean, there were certainly um, some very um, brave, prominent white abolitionists, but uh, for black people like Harriet Tubman or John Parker to go back into um, the slave states and help people to their freedom was an incredibly perilous thing. I mean, it, it's um, they faced death or re-enslavement um, and you know, sometimes uh, imprisonment. That, that happened quite a bit. The first trip you tell us about was the last one you rode, the 940 miles that Harriet Tubman often covered um, on her way to Canada. You blend what you're seeing and feeling on the road with what happened there in the ni- 1850s, like Tubman's trip back home to free her brothers. That was five years after she had freed herself in 1849. Tell us just a bit about that. Well, she she went back because she always believed that uh, I was free and my family should be free. And she had this, was basically a Christmas Day rescue of her brother. She had sent a letter that said, kind of in code, be ready because for the good old ship of Zion will be, will be coming, be ready to get on board. And um, this got to her brothers and said, okay, be ready to be ready to run. And, um, over the Christmas holidays, the the enslaved people were allowed to go and visit family, and Harriet Tubman went to her uh, her mother and father's place and met her brothers in a corn crib outside. And she she could not risk having her mother see um, her brothers and herself because she was afraid that that her mother would just be so overcome with emotion that that the alarm would go out go off. Um, but she, uh, she led her brothers to freedom, um, along ultimately with, with 70, 70 other people. And in her case, the, after 1850, it wasn't enough just to get to the so-called free states. You really needed to get to Canada because slave hunters could be anywhere in the United States. And of course that was near Madison on the Eastern shore. Yes. Um, Madison was uh, a little fishing town that's probably was, was bigger then than it is today. Um, you, you still see some, some crab boats and pleasure boats there. But back then, it was uh, a bustling seaport where people would come in. Harriet Tubman worked there, and she was prodigiously strong. Um, and she helped uh, bring lumber uh, that, would, that actually would... Uh, be some of the the lumber that built the masts and hulls of the of the Baltimore Clippers, but she also from there 
she she would hear of what was going on in the outside world from um, from the sailors that would come in there. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cass speaking with David Goodrich, who used to head climate observations and monitoring at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. His earlier bicycling book is called A Hole in the Wind. We're talking about his new book, On Freedom Road, his account of bicycling almost 3,000 miles on routes that were used in the Underground Railroad. What do you pick up bicycling that's different from driving the routes of the Underground Railroad? It's almost like you're 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 out in the weather, and you know it's um, in in many ways it's different from the underground railroad people in that you're riding um, in the light with benefit of shiny spokes and Gore-Tex and uh, and assured shelter, and and nobody's chasing you. But still, you're you're out in the weather, and you you come to realize how um, amazingly difficult it must have been to travel at night through country that you don't really know, um, although Harriet Tubman knew it very well and what she was the guide. Um, and, you know, there, there were people who were enslaved. Uh, there's one gentleman in the book, John Parker, who was uh, sold at the age of eight and had to walk all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Mobile, Alabama, roughly a thousand miles chained. And this kind of thing was happening all the time. So out in the weather, you just sort of get a feeling. Okay, I need to, uh, I need to keep going, almost independent of what the what the weather is. Probably the only thing that that stopped us is, would be big electrical storms. You don't want to be out in those. But otherwise, we'd pretty much be out in everything. I'd like listeners to hear your description of biking along the Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. Would you read to us from page twenty-four? Sure. The Blackwater Refuge is a, uh, one of my favorite places. Um, the passage is, The Blackwater is beautiful but eerie, with the footprints of climate change much in evidence. Among the sounds of ospreys overhead, we pass panoramas of dead trees. Since it's so flat, the land is quite susceptible to sea level rise. Ghost forests, where trees have been killed by saltwater intrusion, litter the refuge. Between 1938 and 2006, 3,000 acres of forest and agricultural land have become marsh and more than 5,000 acres of marsh became open water. Today, the Blackwater is drowning. It isn't the only place in Tubman country threatened by the advancing sea. Malone's Methodist Episcopal Church, the first African-American church established on the eastern shore after the Civil War, and a stop on the Tubman Byway, frequently finds water underfoot even on sunny days. For the child Harriet Tubman, this was a harsh place. Late fall to early winter was the time for trapping muskrats, where their fur was at its fullest. At six years old, the Broduses hired her out to wade through the frozen marches, checking on traps. Consider stepping into the Blackwater in December, wind whipping through the marsh grass, a skin of ice along the shoreline. After her wade, she frequently fell ill and was sent back to the farm. Early on, she learned brutal lessons in endurance, survival, and invisibility, lessons she would put to good use. Thank you. You write that in Delaware and Pennsylvania, the Underground Railroad was very much intertwined with the Quakers. I mean, I got to say, Thomas Garrett seems like a truly fierce Quaker. Tell us a little bit about him. Thomas Garrett was a uh, was the lead underground conductor in Wilmington, and um, in the era, actually before and 
during uh, Harriet Tubman. And he, um, he, he was a fairly wealthy gentleman. Uh, he owned a hard, hardware business in Wilmington. And he would frequently help people along on, on the Underground Railroad. One of the more famous escapes he had um, with Harriet Tubman was when she approached the bridge, the Market Street Bridge into Wilmington and realized that it was very heavily guarded. They were looking for who, who was coming with her. And Garrett sent a message to Tubman's and sent uh, a couple of wagon loads of bricks out. And when the bricks came back uh, across the Market Street Bridge, inside was Harriet Tubman and the people that she was, she was bringing along. Uh, Garrett actually was, uh, was caught, was fined, uh, actually by none other than, uh, uh, than Chief Justice Tawney, who was sort of on a circuit judge route. Um, uh, Tawney was the, uh, the author of the, the infamous Dred Scott decision. He basically set such a big fine for Thomas Garrett that he, ban that he bankrupted him. And at the trial, Garrett stands up and says, um, if there is any, uh, if there is any slave who needs assistance, have them come to me. So it was, uh, it was pretty remarkable. What do you think you learned retracing Harriet Tubman's travels? I think you learn um, just basically how tough a character she was. We're going through, there's a forest in Delaware um, where the they're basically thorn seed pods on the ground and you realize these people were walking um, over these seed pods in bare feet many times you know some of the things you read in um, one time she had a toothache and and basically referred to as dispensing it with a rock I mean it's kind of hard to imagine um, in in these days but she just had this iron will and she didn't she almost didn't think that it meant that much and it was only after you know people like William Still the the conductor in in Philadelphia wrote about her that just said this is an incredible woman David Goodrich is telling us on the record about his new book On Freedom Road Bicycle Explorations and Reckonings on the Underground Railroad. He'll be discussing it tomorrow evening at Bird in Hand in Charles Village. Details about that in a few minutes. After a short break, Up from the Delta and the Blues. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. I'm Al Waller. I'm Katherine Collinson. And I'm Mihaela Vince. In upcoming episodes of Clear Path, Your Roadmap for Life, we'll discuss ways to catch up on retirement savings and the importance of self-care. Tune in to WYPR's website and mobile app, all major podcast platforms, and transamericainstitute.org. Welcome back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. Before David Goodrich thought about bicycling along the footsteps of Harriet Tubman, other stretches of the Underground Railroad caught his attention, trails along the Mississippi and Ohio rivers. His book, On Freedom Road, 
tells of two bicycle trips in the Midwest as well as one up the eastern shore, totaling nearly 3,000 miles. David, I did not expect the blues to show up in a book about bicycling the Underground Railroad, but you write, quote, In my mind, the arc of history from the slave ships to the Great Migration is all of a piece, and the blues are its soundtrack, close quote. Make that connection for us. In a lot of ways, the um, some of the, the primal rhythms of the blues come from Africa. There are people who who can trace it, but it's also its own thing. In uh, Mississippi, many of the the blues came from what they called field hollers in the uh, sometimes in the prisons, sometimes in the in the cotton fields. And this was when when you come into Mississippi, there's a sign that says um, "Home of America's Music," and it's like, yes, that's that's where we are. Um, so that was that was basically the the connection. It is it almost seems like the soundtrack, what I should be hearing while I'm along. And uh, a gentleman that I was writing with, Rick Sullivan, is a blues guitarist um, who had a guitar, a folding guitar strapped to the bike back of his bike. So we. We had a genuine blues soundtrack as we were riding through. And beyond that, how did you experience the blues as you rode the Underground Railroad? We rode up from New Orleans through the Mississippi Delta and the heart of the Delta Blues, which is Clarksdale. And we saw the, the place where uh, Muddy Waters was a sharecropper. He, he was the one of the primal... Uh, blues slash rock and roll singers of the uh, late 40s and 50s, very influential on groups like the Rolling Stones. And my friend Rick also introduced me to Mississippi John Hurt, who uh, started recording in the 1920s and was rediscovered in the 1960s by the folk artists. He was with the, at the same Newport Festival as, uh, as Bob Dylan and Peter, Paul, and Mary. And back back in the woods is this little shotgun shack that is the Mississippi John Hurt Museum. And one of my favorite photographs is of my friend Rick on the porch of the museum tuning up his guitar. Shifting gears, Josiah Henson was the model for Uncle Tom in Harriet Beecher Stowe's pre-Civil War novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin, before Uncle Tom became codenamed for subservience. You write about the skill and courage Henson and his wife showed as they made it from being enslaved in Kentucky to Canada with three children. And you raise the question of how he knew who he could trust along the way. That's actually um, was a, a difficult situation for anyone on the run because, you know, it wasn't necessarily that, you know, you didn't talk with uh, white people or you avoided white people. You had you had to speak with white people, in some ways, to to try and and buy food along the way. I think Henson was fortunate enough that he was talking with the right people, who guided him from one stop to another. Um, he is he is carrying um, a children, a child or children on his back, along with his uh, uh, his wife and and other son, and they're making it through Cincinnati and up through Western Ohio to Sandusky on Lake Erie. And from there, 
uh, taking a boat to Canada. At this time, Western Ohio, there were still the, the Shawnee Indians. They, um, Henson and his family come upon a Shawnee camp and they basically, they basically take him in and guide him the rest of the way to Lake Erie. Um, but they were, uh, it was like both, both worlds didn't know what to make of each other. It uh, was, was one of the more remarkable encounters. I was riding basically parallel to Josiah Henson's route. Uh, and it's of particular importance to me because uh, Henson was enslaved here in Rockville, my hometown. And there is a, a new Josiah Henson Museum right on old Georgetown Road. That's David Goodrich, bicyclist, climate scientist, and amateur historian. On the record, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about his latest book, On Freedom Road, Bicycle Explorations and Reckonings on the Underground Railroad. He'll be talking about it tomorrow evening at 6 p.m. at Bird in Hand on 33rd Street. Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, is closer to Maryland than Ohio, but you write about John Brown's foiled raid on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry in 1859 in the Western part of your book, mostly to tell us about a young African-American man in Brown's army who had settled in Oberlin, Ohio. What would you want us to know about Lewis Leary? Lewis Leary was one of John Brown's recruits who was killed in the raid at Harper's Ferry. He was only 23 years old. But uh, his shawl made it back to his widow in Oberlin. And uh, his widow later in life is raising, she's remarried and is, is raising her grandson. And she wraps her grandson in Leary's shawl, um, almost to, to transfer, if you will, some of the, the, the magic um, from that shawl, from that um, amazingly brave young man. And the baby that she wrapped in the shawl was Langston Hughes, the great poet of the Harlem Harlem Renaissance. And Hughes writes poetry about Harper's Ferry. He has a, a poem called uh, The Raid, August 19th. And that shawl still exists. That shawl is at the Ohio History Museum in Columbus. And I was able to go into this windowless uh, archive, um, archive building there and one of the archivists unrolled the shawl for me. And it was like, if there is such a thing as, as a piece of cloth that, that can have magic, it, it was the shawl. And it was Langston Hughes who gave the shawl to the Ohio Historical Society in Columbus, right? That's correct. That's correct. It was very much of a family heirloom for him. How did bicycling the Underground Railroad change you? I think uh, in imagining the people that were on my road, uh, I think I, I got quite a bit more sensitive to this history and, and I, I wanted to dig into it a little bit more. I mean, one of the, the quotes that I dug up along the way was one from W.B. Du Bois not almost 100 years ago, and he says, one is astonished in the study of history at the recurrence of the idea that evil must be forgotten, distorted, skimmed over. And now when I when I start hearing some of the, the political discussions, you sort of feel like that history is being skimmed over again. And that this 
this massive enterprise that was slavery is is sort of viewed as this this little anomaly in our history, um, whereas in fact it's it's um, a, a very central part of our history. So that that really um, is what's uh, what's been brought home to me by by the rides on the on the Underground Railroad, and and just how hard it must have been. You know, talking about people, you know, walking walking a thousand miles in chains is is just hard to hard to imagine. Well, thank you for telling us about your journeys. It has been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Sheila. David Goodrich's new book is On Freedom Road, Bicycle Explorations and Reckonings on the Underground Railroad. Tomorrow at 6 p.m., he'll discuss it at the Ivy Bookshop's Bird in Hand, 11 East 33rd Street in Baltimore. At the On the Record page at WIPR.org, we have the link to register. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Join us again tomorrow.